I'm David Kern. I'm Heidi White. And I'm Tim McIntosh. And you are listening to Close Reads, a podcast for the incurable reader on which we are discussing one day in the life of Ivan Denisovich, Alexander Solzhenitsyn's novel. And in particular, we are discussing and I guess attempting to answer your questions on this this book. It's our last conversation on this book. And uh, up next, we have a very different book totally. It's going to be The Moving Toy Shop, which is a English mystery novel with a great deal of humor to it. Uh, I always say that it's a little bit of Agatha Christie, a little bit of P.G. Woodhouse. So it's a very different tone than than what we've got going on here in Ivan Denisovich, which isn't to say that this isn't a good or even uplifting book, but it's just it's not a funny. different experience. It is not funny. <laughs> it's not as funny. That is true. We, uh, we'll just dig right into these questions. Um, and Tim, I'm going to start with you on on this one here. Um, and I'm I'm just digging right in because we're all busy and I want to make sure we maximize our time here and get a chance to talk about as many of these as we can. Hannah, Tim, has a question here where she says, I vaguely remember Tim saying in the winnowing podcast for 2023 books, so the one we did a year released a year ago, that he really loved this book. And to put it bluntly, I did not love this book, says <laughs> Hannah. Can you go a little deeper into the why that you'd love this, Tim? Maybe I just need to reread it a couple of times. So I think the question is partly not just why do you appreciate this book, but why do you love this book? I don't know if you would say it's a heart book, but you did, I believe, say that you loved it. So I do love this book. Hannah, here's my threefold case for why I love this book. I, 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 I don't know that I have a threefold case, but this book has all the things I think that we look for in a really great novel. Um, characterization. I think that he does an exceptionally good job at like, capturing just with like scraps of conversation. He does a great job of capturing and portraying characters. Um, I think the plot is, I think I'm like masterful. The fact that he just did, he just followed someone through a work camp over the course of 18 hours. And for me, kept it so interesting because every little episode has its obstacles and its potential solutions. And then within the overall frame of like just surviving a day and getting your gruel and going to sleep without having your throat slit or the ice, you know, taking over your body made a compelling um, plot. I think that the tie-in to history like this was actually happening in Siberia in the 20th century, I think is also fascinating. I think he's a great prose writer. That mixture of kind of um, almost high poetry in places with the, uh, how would you say it? Like with the real hardcore street language of Russian prisoners, I think he mashed those things up in a wonderful way. And I finished the book and I, it's strange for such a bleak book. I'm so hopeful at the end of this book. I'm like, yeah, we can make it another day. Here we go. <laughs> Hannah, that is my four part reply your, to you. Your defense. That is my, my, this is my defense. Your apology. Me apologia provida sua. My defense <laughs> for my life. This is my, Hannah, if you don't appreciate this book, you don't appreciate you don't appreciate me. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, I'm glad that that's been that's been stated out there in the world. Heidi, yeah. if you could, if there was one book out in the world that if someone didn't appreciate it, they wouldn't appreciate you. What would you say that is? Anne of Green Gables. Okay, right. And if that doesn't say a lot about the two of you, for you it's Anne of Green Gables. For him, it's Ivan Denisovich. I mean, I was kidding about Ivan Denisovich. I, I would say that about some other books, but not about. Not about Ivan Denisovich. <laughs> what would it be? I think it would be... Hamlet? No, I, it, well, yeah, for sure. If someone doesn't like <laughs> Hamlet, I think you've fallen out of love with the world. I mean, that's how <laughs> I totally I agree with that. Um, yeah. I mean, I think Anna Karenina and Crime and Punishment, those it's are my kind of It's got to be Anna Karenina. Yeah, that's right. right. Okay. Well, again, I repeat, that says a lot about the two of you, Anna Green Gables you, and the David? Russians. Yeah. You know, it's a, I don't, I honestly, I'm sitting here thinking, and I don't know the answer to that question. Okay, hold on, David. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. And I'm going to play, since I'm going to play Hannah right now. This is so unfair. Hannah, I, 
like I'm teasing you. I hope it's okay that I'm teasing you on the air, but I'm going to play Hannah. Um, David, Lonesome Dove is dumb. It's not <laughs> well written. The characters are flat. I don't really care about. Who cares about a, this journey anyway? Man, she really didn't run, go that hard please. on on Ivan Denisovich is what you're doing there on Lonesome Dove, a book I know you like. That's you. Would, I think you would if if but, someone came at you and they're like, "I like how Man. David's trying to turn the whole point of this exercise back on you, Tim." <laughs> I know, I know, and I'm just like bypassing it. Um, if if someone said about Lonesome Dove, you'd be like, "You, oh gosh, like you don't get me." Yeah. We can't be friends. It would be high for sure. Uh, I would be. It'd be hard. It'd be high up there. Um, it's one of the books I've read the most, and it's the combination of drama and good prose and humor. Like, Bro. it might be loads of stuff. Yeah, but I don't know what that says about me either. So, what does it say about Hannah that she so <laughs> vilely accused you? I know. I of Hannah, your favorite book. Poor Hannah. I know. Hannah needs to like Hannah and I. Maybe we need to. I'm about to do an Anne. I'm about do some, to do an Anne of Green Gables defense of Hannah. I feel like <laughs> Hannah's being wildly misunderstood right now. <laughs> she is. She 100. Yeah. We're having fun. I see with her. you, Hannah. I see Hannah you. got caught up in one of Tim's little plays. Yeah, right, right. She became a character in right. a Tim Tim play. Hey, I just wanted to start with this question because I figured it would be some bring some good energy. But before we keep going, I do need to tell you about our sponsor for this episode. And our sponsor for this episode is a is a magazine which I am quite fond of. It's called Ecstasis Magazine, and uh, it's a digital cathedral of sorts, helping a generation of Christians admire beauty and tune their spiritual and aesthetic affections. They aim to arouse the aesthetic affections of Christians and invite and empower them to be creative. And they're also looking to nurture the future of Christian writers and creatives through an annual print journal, monthly digital collections, an ambassador program, Ecstasis Cafe events, a, a, a digital cathedral, and uh, via social media. So they 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 would say that where social media flattens, Ecstasis aims to deepen and meet people where they seek inspiration, merging the heart of beautiful orthodoxy, a poetic lens of faith, skillful storytelling, and visual lev- levity. If you would like to learn more about Ecstasis, then uh, click the, the link in the show notes, go to ecstasis.com, um, or head over to any of their social media uh, accounts. Have either of you checked out Ecstasis before? I'm just curious. I was just going to say, yes. I, for some reason, and I don't even know where, I got a few free issues just sent, like mailed to me. Okay. And the cover design was so beautiful. I was like, I'm going to open this up. And I was like, what is this magazine? This is terrific. But I don't. I didn't know... Somehow I got on somebody's mailing list and I got a few free copies and I really, really like that magazine. Hey, yeah, it, looks, you... it looks really good. High quality, just the mm-hmm. materials of it. Right. Yeah, agreed. I Well, and it's just thoughtful, like curated content that is just really in line with what we're all about. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think I just said it's ecstasis.com, but it's actually ecstasismagazine.com. So that was kind of like just a, you know, uh, a, and a uh, faux pas there, a podcasting faux pas when sharing information about your advertisers. Best to get the link right. So it's <laughs> ecstasismagazine.com also, and it is in the show notes. But you know um, who are, loves this magazine? Go Hannah. On. Hannah? Hannah loves yes. it. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't resist. Well, well uh, especially the version of Hannah that's in your play. Yeah, right, she, right, right. This Hannah would be really into Ecstasis Magazine, yeah. which you could learn more about at ecstasismagazine.com. Um, or check the show notes in the in the link to this episode. But uh, we are very appreciative to them for for sponsoring this episode. They're gonna, they're going to sponsor a few more as well. And um, I really like what they're doing. They're really really kind people, um, and their social media, uh, their Instagram page is one of the best. So check them out as well. Uh, right there. Okay, let's get into some more questions here. Um, and they're not all from they're not all from Hannah. But shout out to Hannah for getting us started here. Um, Here's one that I we could let's talk about. We're gonna work our way into some some heavier ones. Here's one from Emily, which is this is not to say that it's not a good question. It's just not as heavy. So Emily says, if Ivan Denisovich were to be remade into a film, and mm. if time travel were a thing, which actors across history would you cast for the main roles in One Day in the Life? Uh, Heidi, you want to go first on this one? No, I don't. That's I hard. hadn't read any of the questions beforehand, which I usually do, so I have nothing ready. But you know, that, I, I think this is a really good question. It's hard because I always think of, I'm so bad at actors. I know like a half dozen actors by name. These are my favorites. 
Anthony Hopkins, you know, but Anthony Hopkins can't play every role in One Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich. Mm -hmm. And I can see some people like Steve Buscemi belongs somewhere in this this movie, but I don't know exactly mm -hmm. which Maybe character. Maybe working in the kitchen. He's probably working in the kitchen. That's right. Uh, David, do you have somebody? David's, David's got really them all. Good at questions David's got like them this. all. Well, I mean, Bogart would be an incredible shoe call, but like Bogart's good at everything, but he would have the right, you know, the right energy, I think, for it. The the thing that's difficult for me about this, and I didn't look at this either ahead of time, it's just like more than like 30 minutes before. The the trick is there have been so many prison movies made that it's hard for me not to get those performances out of my head, like Alec Guinness in The Bridge on the River Kauai or Paul Newman in Cool Hand Luke, right? Um so those are some of the kinds of actors that would show up for me pretty quickly. Um, but I do, I mean, I, I just, I think Bogart would be, would be really good as Shukov. He's got like that kind of, um, he could do the batter down, like but a still like kind of hang yeah, he's a, look he, to him. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. He's going to be, uh, he's a little beaten down and hang dog, as you said, but he's not completely, he hasn't been completely overwhelmed by the world. He's still got a little bit of the, the cleverness. Um, Maybe not Bog maybe like Bogart in Sierra Leone. I mean Sierra Madre before they before he like loses his soul. Tom Hanks would be good in this. Like a young Tom Hanks, Tom Hanks. Maybe, but he brings so much like he might be a little bit like good looking for it. Yeah, you're probably right. Is speaking of not good looking, is Humphrey Bogart the least attractive Hollywood lead of all time? Maybe, but it's the droopy eyes. It's the droopy eyes that makes him unattractive or that makes no, him appealing? That, that works for him. Yeah, that makes yeah. him appealing in spite of the fact that he's not handsome. If that's the case, if he is the most, the least handsome, like classically handsome Hollywood star ever, he really was the dude in a lot of incredible romances and movies. And oh my gosh, I know. Because of that. The ratio, the ratio of like women who he's in a relationship with on screen and off screen compared to classic good looks no, right. it has got to be like the, the highest ever oh you you say the, like the gulf between him and the overall like quality of the leading women who he had romantic either real life relationships with or on cinema relationships with that's like the widest gulf of all time is that what you're saying it's got to be that's if what that's, he's saying. If that's, yeah yeah, if he's the least, I don't know. Fast the hot to hot scale is off. Is the hot like, to hot a, scale is so off. That is an interpretation of what you just. That's a hundred percent right. Like the. I mean, we're talking Catherine Hepburn, Audrey Hepburn, Lauren, Lauren Bacall, Bacall, just to name oh my three. Gosh. Lauren Bacall. Go on. Oh my, Lauren Bacall. <laughs> like, what is the, what is the movie? That felt like you had more to say. She. There's some movie. I was like, what are we doing here? <laughs> this is like, this is what the Q&A is, isn't it? Isn't that this what the Q&A is? Lauren Bacall, they kind of like, the camera kind of frames her from her shoes up to her look. And she's like, you know, super young when she makes her breakout. And she has just got it. She's got the attitude. She's so beautiful. Lauren Bacall. Too bad she couldn't be in this movie. It's Ingrid Bergman all the way. So that's oh. the best one. Ingrid Bergman, I mean, like, of course, but Lauren Bacall. For me, it's Lauren Bacall because of the attitude. The kind of like yeah. elbow on the table. I don't really care what you say. Like, just soak up my like incredible magnetism. That's your job. <laughs> All right, let's move on. Um, hey, Heidi, Suzanne wants to know if you would say that Ivan has hope. Is this a hopeful book? Um, I think one of the whole points of this book is that he is too, that he has been swallowed by the system and, and within the, uh, within the oppressive dehumanizing system with, that he's in, it's impossible, uh, without some kind of spiritual illumination, which we see through Aliashka, it's impossible to truly have meaningful hope. But he's doing the best he can. He's maintaining his dignity the best that he can. Um, but 
hope is something that in that kind of oppressive system can only be supplied with some kind of spiritual illumination, which as far as we know, he has so far rejected. However, I think from an outside perspective, we we have hope for him, even if he doesn't have hope yet for himself. Um, we're told within the story that he 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 can't allow himself really to think in a meaningful way of 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 getting out in the future. He knows he only has two years left, but he has to force himself to only see it as one day at a time, one day in the life of Ivan Denisovich, and then the next day is one day in the life of Ivan Denisovich, and so on and so forth. Right. Um, and uh, and so I think that that for him is the best he can do. Uh, but for us, I think we are given through the story something meaningful to cling to in hoping for him through his relationship with um, his spiritually illuminated um, companion within the gulag. Do you agree with that, Tim? I do wholeheartedly. I think that like any sort of, like the glimmer of hope on the horizon that we see through Alyoshka is the best that we can do. This book wouldn't allow something more than a glimmer of hope, you know? I mean, I don't think it would permit more than a glimmer of hope. It would right. might, it it wouldn't might feel, be truthful. Yeah, yeah, it wouldn't be truthful. So yeah, I think that that silver lining, um, especially contrasted with the kind of like deep darkness of the last 18 hours, I think is like, yeah, it's like it's like a it's in almost incandescent set against set against the darkness of the last 18 hours. So Suzanne has a second part to this. And I just, okay, there it is. With, with the movies Shawshank Redemption and Cool Hand Luke in mind, obviously very American stories, how would you, how does Ivan compare with their heroic main characters? And we talked last week about, this is me adding an aside here. We talked last week about how he's not, uh, Shukov is not a hero. But how, in comparison to those, um, how they cope with their own soul crushing imprisonment. So, Tim, I don't, I don't know. If we need to get too much into those particular movies per se. But we can if you want to. But what makes this book's version of a imprisoned protagonist dealing with soul crushing um, imprisonment different? Uh, it's been stories? a while since I've seen Cool Hand Luke, but my recollection is that Cool Hand Luke is sort of the story of this sort of like volcanic personality who won't be tamed by this like really unjust, nasty um, prison warden. Um, Shawshank Redemption is the lead character, Tim Robbins, has been unjustly accused. And like Cool Hand Luke is like, man, this volcanic personality refuses to be like to wear the yoke of this terrible warden. And then Shawshank Redemption is, spoiler alert, when Tim Robbins escapes, it's like, man, finally justice is being done. He was never guilty in the first place. And he's made this friendship in prison with Red. And man, what a great ending because unjust disjustice, disjustice has been done, I started to say with my mouth. <laughs> the, the, the injustice has been like corrected. This book is definitely um, our main character was unjustly accused and imprisoned. There's no question about that. But the book is not about like overturning this injustice. It's it's surviving. It's just surviving. Do you do you see it a different way, Heidi? Oh no, I completely agree. I think they're two completely different stories. And one of them is a great work of literature and the other two are some are like good movies. Right. And and I think I think that a prison, however horrifying and dehumanizing a prison is, a prison is not a death camp. And a death camp is doing something intentionally to crush the humanity of its inhabitants. The Zex in the Gulag went through something that was intended to destroy and dismantle everything human about it. And if they ended up dying, great. And, and, and that really is different from a prison, even if some of the circumstances that happen within are very similar. And I don't say that to denigrate prison life. It's 
absolutely traumatizing and horrifying, but it is not the gulag. And um, the, so there's that. B, that you brought attention to the main characters, uh, the central characters in those, in those films. And those are great films. Both of them are. Um, but the purpose is different. Like those two prison movies are about the triumph of the human spirit. And I think that you, you already said this, Tim, and this is, I'm just saying in a different way, uh, the triumph of the human spirit. Whereas in, in one day we get the impact of this dehumanizing, intentionally crushing system on the human spirit. And this story is honest about that. Um, and so the dignity is even more, I would say probably even more hard fought because it's an ordinary person, not an extraordinary person. Um, and, uh, and, and so in that sense, we don't get like one man against the system. We get one man in the system who's enduring the best as he can. Um, and, uh, so I think that there's two different purposes, um, and the contemplation on justice is very different, as you said. Um, in in the prison movies, we get uh, a triumph, and in one day, we get just a quiet endurance. And I'm I think that those purposes are very different. D- I, David, I, do you have anything to add to that? Well, I think I agree with you. As I mean, we don't need to get into. We're not debating the movies at this point, but I, I agree with you as far as Shawshank does. But I, I actually think Cool Hand Luke. Owes a lot to stories like Ivan Denisovich because, again, in the end, he doesn't win. He gets killed. Right. And it's kind of about, like, there's these lots of conversation in it about um, Luke blaming God um, for, like, sabotaging his life so That's that he true. had no chance to win. So I, I, don't, I don't think they necessarily have the same conclusions or whatever. Um, it's a movie, so they're trying to, it, it actually is funny in moments, right? And, and, it's Paul Newman, so it's he has this great deal of charm. So the experience is very different than reading Ivan Denisovich. But it does raise questions of justice that I think both of these books raise. And so I think the comparison is, is while not... Like, I think her question is... The, the sort of premise behind her question, I think, is actually pretty good because all of these different prison stories kind of are in, in sort of, to some degree or another, inherently about the question of justice. And how does a person respond when an injustice has been done? Because they're almost always about people who are in prison wrongly. I mean, sometimes you get prison movies that are about like, yeah, you did the wrong thing. But most of them are about prisoners of war or someone who is being treated, is being imprisoned for something worse than what they actually did. And, you know, um, so I think, I think the question, I, I appreciate the question because it's, it's got me thinking about what the book is ultimately trying to accomplish. And I think what it tries to accomplish is different than those movies, um, especially Shawshank, to your point. But I think just thinking about the question of justice in relation to this book is actually very worthwhile, is what I would just say. I agree with that. I actually really appreciate the part of the question that acknowledges that the movies are American stories and this is a Russian story, because that's very, that has an massive impact on the way Ivan endures. I, I, I was thinking this week making the connection with the, with the beaten horse in Crime and Punishment, um, and uh, with this with the Zex in the Gulag, right? That the Russian soul has at its core, like as we can say. I mean, I'm not Russian, but as I can interpret it and feel it through the novels, through through the Russian authors, Russian novels. There's this core of like endurance rather than resistance, which is very American. Like you resist injustice. That is, that's the American story of yeah, triumph. Yeah, is trying to like push yes. back. And in that, and that to your point, even though it's a very different story. And I think that's what I was trying to get at and talking about Cool Hand Luke and that there is this idea like he's heroic because he's resisting. Like he wins even in his yeah. death. Because he never yeah. gives in, right. but Ivan yeah. gives in, and they all do, and and not gives in in the sense of of becoming wicked, but gives in in the sense of like I just have to endure this, 
And that's two completely different things, which I think goes to the soul of the nations involved, which is why I really appreciate she brought up the American, the American story versus the Russian story. Totally different. But you're right. They're all yeah. contemplations of justice and injustice. And the only reason Shawshank works is because he's unjustly accused and mm. unjustly imprisoned, um, which is different from the other two as well. Uh, moving on, just because it's a Q&A, I want to spin back to that in a second. But since we're talking about the differences between American and Russian books, I want to bring up a question here by Andrew. Uh, Andrew Wilson, who I believe... Uh, comes into the bookstore uh, like every other day. So, hey, Andrew, we love you guys. And he has been following along with Close Reads and, and he said that this is the first Russian book that he read. And he has a question here about the names, which I want to answer first, Tim, but then I also want to ask you something else and follow up to that. So he says, I'm, I'm entirely uneducated in Russian culture. Is there significance in the naming of characters, particularly our main prisoner and how they are addressed? Ivan Denisovich Shukov is referred to as Shukov by the narrator, but he's often called Ivan Denisovich by the fellow Zeks. Some Zeks are referred to by their first name or last, sometime with two names. Then there is the spiritual uh, conversation at the end of the day where Alyoshka calls him Denisovich in one particular instance. So is this simply formal versus familiar versus intimate? The Denisovich really stuck out to me as quite intentional. Or is this just like how Southerners go by their middle name sometimes? So Tim, uh, if you can answer that first, if you know, and then I want to uh, ask one follow-up question related to this. I don't know the answer. All I know is that the pattern in Russian novels, and I think the pattern in Russian names, is there's all sorts of abbreviations and nicknames. Everybody's got one. Um, but like the meanings behind those names, I don't know. I just don't know. But it's, I, did, I mean, like before, like if you look at Crime and Punishment, because it was referred to earlier, there's a list of all of the different names that people go by. And there's usually three, sometimes four, sometimes even like six. So it's a naming culture, Heidi. <laughs> it is the formal and uh, familiar and intimate thing. Um, so you would call Shukov is his family name. Ivan is his first name. Denisovich is a, his patronic, which is a reference to his father, right? Son of Dene, Denise, what would be what that means. Um, and so if you're addressing someone you know, but not um, are not intimate with, you would call them by their first name and their patronic um, and, and not really by their last name. So, but we would, we would know him by his last name. And that's the difference with the namings as far as, um, um, the I'm I'm really interested in the question um, that you ask Andrew about the meaning of the names. Like in Crime and Punishment, Raskolnikov's name means divided, but I don't speak Russian, so I wouldn't know that unless I was told. Um, and so I don't know if there's if that's the case here. Um, I mean, with the name Ivan, 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 um, there's so many great Russian characters that came before Sultanitsyn, whose name was Ivan, that I have to wonder if that's a reference to that um, or just like an, a nod um, to past Ivans. <laughs> um, but in terms of uh, the actual kind of like underlying meaning of names, that that's something that I think a Russian speaker would have to address. And I don't know. I wish I did. And I apologize to all the people who I offend every time I say Ivan. That's fine. But, I mean, that's know. the Americanized version of it. That's what we say. We say right. Ivan. So that's not wrong in America. And we're in America. <laughs> yeah. It's very hard to like retrain your brain yeah. to for something like that. So the follow-up question I wanted to ask is something we touched on a little bit, I think, in one of our two conversations. But I, if correct me if I'm wrong, but I think only in passing. In what ways is this book... Um, in keeping with the tradition of Russian literature, which, as we got talked about earlier, Tim, you are so fond of, such that if someone doesn't appreciate it, they don't appreciate you. <laughs> um, is there, like, what would you say the the things are that make it a part of that tradition and maybe where it does something a little different? Because it is more mo more contemporary, more modern anyway than Tolstoy and Dostoevsky and Gogol and people like that. The thing that I think of is the kind of comfortability with suffering you know like it, in a lot of ways just staring it right in the face yeah staring it right in the face i mean in so many ways this 
we don't, America doesn't have censors, but like this doesn't really pass, like Americans just wouldn't abide a book by this. It's just too full of like just tolerating suffering. And it just seems like that is just part of what it means to be a Russian. It's just your plight having been born on that soil. You just have to suffer. That's the first thing that jumps out to me. Heidi, maybe you've got something else. No, I think that's right. So, but if you read Dostoevsky or even Tolstoy to some degree, like there's a lot of suffering in Crime and Punishment. There's a lot of suffering in The Idiot or Brothers K or whatever. But there's always these theological... Uh, yeah assertions underneath the presentation of that suffering is that absent here and if so do you think he is i mean is it just because it's shorter that's a great i think that's right and i i think the absence of that philosophical contemplation i'm so glad you said that david because i'm gonna add to what i said that the absence of that in ivan is so is surprising to those of us who are familiar with the russian literary tradition um or even solzhenitsyn in general that's right. And which goes to, to Hannah, who's famous on this episode. This is the hashtag Hannah episode. Um, to Hannah's <laughs> original question uh, about, do I have to like this book? One of the reasons I think that we like it a lot or love it is because it fits into an existing tradition and it adds to it and it kind of reimagines it. And one of the ways that it reimagines the Russian tradition is that Ivan and the other uh, and the other Zeks don't have time to think about the meaning of life. And that absence in the Russian soul is compelling because that's what we're used to in these stories. Um, and, right, yeah. and, and even in a character, like to go back to Anna Karenina, even in a character like Vronsky, who is all sensation, all belly kind of character, Dimitri in, in the Brothers K, um, this like belly-driven appetite of characters, even both of them are constantly thinking about the meaning of life. And, um, and because that's just the Russian soul. And the absence of that in these characters is, is so noticeable in light of the rest of the tradition that we have to ask ourselves why, which is where we get to the idea of they have been so dehumanized by this experience of suffering that they don't have room for that, which is a, uh, a gutting of the national soul as well as the individual soul. And I think that's really important in interpreting this story. Tim, do you want to add to that or should I ask the next question? Next question. Okay, so Sarah makes an assertion and then asks a question. She says this book has an overall hopeful ending. So she's camp, she's uh, she's officially putting is. her flag down on the on the hopeful ending island. I'm wondering how much of that is shaped by all of the small victories in the story. Getting two good bowls of soup, getting to the dealer before the tobacco runs out, the small providence that prevented the discovery of the nice knife blade. She then puts an ellipsis. Of course, there were bad moments too, but the story seems to ride on the wave of an overall, quote, victorious day. How would the tone be different if these outcomes had all been bad or if the book had been told from the point of view of those who did not fare as well? And what does this tell us about Solzhenitsyn? It, it does. I think that's a great observation. It's like a series of these small victories. And when he goes to bed, Shukov is like, man, overall, this is a good day. I think that the these little victories kind of enhance the prospect that there might be something outside of life that is worth hoping in. And it's not just a uh, crazy fever dream. Like if all these little things went well, if I got two bowls of soup, oh my goodness, all these little victories, maybe there's like another victory. Maybe there's something outside of this world that I can hope for. That, that's, I think, how I read it. It's sort of um, the hope for life outside of life or afterlife is kind of an echoing of these little victories that we saw in the camp. Heidi? Yeah, I think so. Um I think it is the all-important conversation with Alyoshka the Baptist that gives them the story its true hope, like its soul, like the 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 true hope of the story. Even though 
Ivan resists Alyoshka, but you can see this grace that's coming through the conversation either way. And I think that's true even if you read the story from a secular perspective, because it you don't have to be a Christian, although it helps. You don't have to be a Christian to see the impact of a person who is able to still connect with transcendence, even when our main character can't, as as being hopeful. Like you don't have to be a person of faith. Um, Brad said or visited. Yeah, exactly. Um, to see what that offers. And I think in the absence of that conversation, I would not say it's hopeful, even though he had a good day. Um, but I think that there's still a tone of optimism that then deepens the impact of that other conversation. So Heidi, Rachel has a question here that I want to, that I want to read because I think it's, you're kind of answering it. So, but, um, she says, I'm doubtful I could write that many words about just one mostly ordinary day. And so that itself was impressive. The quote that stuck with me was in regards to how the prisoners viewed time. Quote, the days rolled by in the camp. They were over before you could say knife. But the years, they never rolled by. They never moved by a second, end quote. At my stage of life with young children, I often think the exact opposite of this. The days are long, but the years are short. I was left pondering all the time that was stolen from these men and how the cruel the, the quote, justice system was that they lived under. The only hope I was able to see was in the character of Alyoshka. So to your point, in reading this from my Christian worldview, says Rachel, he is the only one with an eternal perspective. He can live or die under the excruciating prison environment because he has hope of living in eternity without pain and suffering. Therefore, he is the truly unbreakable. Do you agree with this? So just kind of cycling back around to what you were just saying, but it seems like it's the right time to bring this question up. So you're saying that Alyoshka is the one that orients us towards those kind of questions. I think so. Yes, absolutely. Uh, because he's a the person in the story who can think beyond just this day. He's the only one who's thinking other than today. Can I get thicker soup? Can I get my knife through? Um, and so we are left with the hope, I think, to a kind of a double layer of hope. One is that it's possible to have good days in the, in a hellhole like that. There's one bit of hope. Two, there's somebody here who has faith beyond just this one day. And those two things kind of anchor the story and hope for us as the readers, even though our main character isn't fully entering into the hope that Alyoshka is offering, nor is he guaranteed to have other good days, right? We're left with like, these are kind of weird. Maybe tomorrow he won't get thick soup. Maybe tomorrow he'll get caught and end up in the hole like like the captain, right? Um, so it's it's honest in that sense, but it does have these two anchors. Tim, do you want to add anything to this or should I move on to the next question? Well, I, I'm tempted to open up, I'm going to open up a little theological hornet's nest. Can, a can of worms. A can of worms. Yes. Um, Alyoshka seems like he's the only one who has an eternal perspective. But I but I wanna say it's not because Alyoshka is somehow stronger or smarter or I don't know, has some kind of like deep um hope organ in him that the other characters refuse to have. Um and, and thus is worthy of our praise or something like that. Alyoshka has the gift. He like the gift of of hope and of salvation was given to him. And I just want to sympathize with the other characters in this novel. They're living in hell. They're living in hell. And I, I mean, maybe the person who was asking the question and maybe I'm just reading into this, I I wouldn't want to point the finger at them, at the other prisoners and say, well, they fell short. Because I think sometimes we kind of speak about faith in this kind of like double-edged way. Like it's the gift from God that no man should boast, but maybe we kind of earned it a little bit. Like our beliefs are a little bit like, you know, we have like a more robust kind of like belief apparatus within us or something like that. And I, I, don't know that that's really biblical and I wouldn't want to apply that to this book there. Well, and I think that Solzhenitsyn is 
drawing attention to that. Like what other way to to show exactly what you're saying, Tim, than to look at faith in the gulag? Yeah. Right? Like yeah. there's there's no <laughs> like to your point that is that's the closest thing to hell that has ever been on the earth. Yeah. And intentionally so. And and then to look at these people and then to to choose as the main character a man who is rejecting what mm-hmm. Alyoshka is offering. And yet at the end of the story, we still have hope for him. Mm-hmm. Not because Alyoshka is like witnessing to him, right? right. But because he's managing to stay human in hell. Yeah. And is that not enough? Yeah. Like right. what more could, like that is, like that is enough. Right. And, in a, in and, a way. Yes. Sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry, no, it was I'm lagging. Done. It was lagging. Sorry. Yeah. I'm done. You sure? Yes. All right. Sorry. The, in a way, the church kind of does the same thing though, right? Like when we point towards saints and martyrs and stuff like that, a lot of times we're not necessarily pointing towards people who went around converting everybody they saw. A lot of times it's people who, I mean, certainly you have that that aspect of it, but there's also the people who in the midst of a plague served people in the midst of some kind of hell yeah. on earth, maintained their humanity and modeled the love of God in the midst of chaos. Um, and so, you know, what he's, it's all, Solzhenitsyn almost seems to be approaching thematically the same way. But let's move on here because, Tim, I want to ask this question to you from Suzanne. It says, she says, how does this considering, how does considering this book as an indictment of the Soviet government by a dissident change how we read it? Um, What are other books of this kind? Heidi has mentioned, and this is me adding in here, you mentioned a couple of times, this was hell on earth. The whole point was to basically dehumanize people and if they died, well then great. I think that was to use your phrase. So then Suzanne asks, I first read it a few years ago after finishing the the Gulag. So in addition to having a certain performed perception of the story, I also took it more non-fictionally. It didn't feel as significant as other novels in a grand narrative kind of way, maybe partly because of the length of the book as well as the storyline, but it felt more true. Um, So Tim, you know a little bit about this era of of history. You've studied it a little bit, I believe. So how do you think about this book as an indictment of the Soviet government, as a kind of political document, although it's more more than that? I I don't know of anybody who reads the book without knowing that. It's possible, but it's, I mean, it's also possible to read Animal Farm as just sort of like a fable about animals and to not know it's kind of an indictment of, you know, the rise of the Russian uh, Soviet system. So the first part of that is kind of hard for me to, is, is hard for me to answer. I just can't imagine someone approaching this book without first reading the blurb or like two pages of the forward and being like, oh, this is real. This is a fictionalized account of like a real life situation that was the Siberian labor camps. But maybe I'm not doing the question justice, David. Help me with the second part of it. I think maybe, Tim, because we've been talking about it as a literary narrative so much, she's asking us to get into the politics. Well, uh, we did. Yeah, yeah, I think we, and we did talk at the beginning of the first episode. I think, Heidi, you talked Mm -hmm. about how this is one of the most important books of the 20th century and that it revealed things to the world that, had otherwise sort of been rumor. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, can you just part, read it? Read it again, really quick. Well, how does the how does considering this book as an indictment of the Soviet government by a dissident change how we read it? Hmm. So you know, if you think if we're reading it more as a political book, how right. does it change the approach? I mean, I think actually this is a really good question because um, this it this was an artifact that had a profound impact on its political landscape and its cultural landscape not only in russia but maybe even more in the west it was through reading solzhenitsyn that we get that we in the west got cared really <laughs> um he was in a sense a whistleblower uh, and this book got past the censors because it was considered to be an indictment of stalin um and by a political rival, right? And uh, and someone who's trying to consolidate power makes Stalin look bad. So that got past the censors. Now, Solzhenitsyn said in multiple 
interviews and in multiple places in his writings that Ivan Denisovich is soft peddling how bad the gulag yeah. was. He had to be very, very careful in order to get it past the censors. So this is not even an accurate envision of the hell that the gulag was, which now we can read books like Father Arseni, you could read the Gulag Archipelago. There's there's lots of books now. The Aviator takes this on um, by Vodolajkin, like what it was really like. And and those stories are 10 times more disturbing than Ivan Denisovich. By a mi- I mean, this is a mild, <laughs> this is a truth-telling story, but the the torment, the 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 physical, spiritual, emotional deprivation and um and torment that the Zex went through, like this is mild. Um it's- yeah, go ahead. And I so I think that that's Sorry. part of it. Like I, to to the question, this was a story intentionally designed to get past the censor so that the West could get a little bit of a taste of what it was like. Yeah. And by the yeah. way, in the fifties, there were a lot of the intelligentsia were very warm with the idea of um, communism. It was held out as this really hopeful alternative to the kind of overreaches of the capitalistic system. And a lot of people just didn't know because the Soviet Union had communications on lockdown. So this was one of the very first moments where, especially the intelligentsia in the United States and the West was like, oh, maybe we should kind of back off the our affection for communism because it doesn't really look like it's the like the united and universal brotherhood that's about to flourish across the world. Maybe it's like actually despotic. So this, yeah. yeah, this is one of the first glimpses of that. But yeah, to to as you said, Heidi, it's a good question because the book we're all told that this book is important in that way, and mm-hmm. so to ask how does it change how we should read it, I think is a worthwhile question to ask. Let's do a couple more questions here before we go. Um, Emily says. Uh, the passages about Shukov's bricklaying were giving me big Wendell Berry vibes, thinking totally. about the relationship work has on human dignity. And then I realized that Berry actually wrote a little about one day in the life uh, in his newest book, The Need to Be Whole. She quotes him here saying, Solzhenitsyn requires us to consider that there may be something redemptive, some power to keep us whole and sane in work itself. That is because Ivan's work, insofar as he is self-motivated, is so set apart from its circumstances, from the forces that supposedly compel it, as to be work for its own sake. End quote. Of all the little pleasures Shukov accumulates, his bricklaying seems to have the most impact. The prisoners he respects are also the more dedicated workers. He even said that that getting thrown in the cooler wasn't so bad as long as you got let out to do your job. So to what extent do you think Shukov's ability to find value in work for its own sake is the thing that enables him to survive? And then she does put in parentheses, as opposed to faith, family, or just sheer determination. And is that a conclusion that Solzhenitsyn wants us to draw? Heidi, you want to go first on that one? Yeah, I mean, I think that everything she says is right. That um, that's that is the heart of the story. That's the that's the only bit of meaningful um, self forgetfulness that we have in this story. When he doesn't have to be cunning, he doesn't have to be thinking about how he's going to get more in a closed system. Like, there's only so much stew in the pot and he wants to get the thickest part but with work like he can he can do it as she says and um as Wendell Berry says for for its own sake and that's that allows him to to forget for a minute the intense uh self-focus, the myopia that's required for survival, as Tim said, um, within an environment this like this. Um, and to me, it rings very true. Like I I, I feel like, you know, knowing Solzhenitsyn was in the gulag, I wonder how much of this is is from his own experience. Like it seems very true. And as I said last week, this was the part that surprised me the most because this is the part that seems like, oh, that would be so horrible. Like to just be like relentlessly like working all day on something that doesn't matter, but it's the work itself that ends up mattering in, in, a, in, in a day like this. And that mm. I think is, um, that's the closest thing that he has that to remind him of who he truly is, his true self. Tim, any final any thoughts on that? No. I already nailed it. 
All right, let's <laughs> move on to this question here from Cynthia. And I'll ask this one to you, Tim. Although, Heidi, feel free to jump in if you if you want to. I can't remember if I've ever heard you talk about this subject on the show. I thought the lack of chapter breaks was perfect mm. for this book. It pushed us along, reinforcing the fact that this was all one day, a rushed full day. I tend to have a preference for short chapters, but I haven't thought about much about why chapters choose short or long or a mixture or no chapters at all. So do you have good or bad examples of the use of chapter breaks? And do you have a preference as readers? I like short chapters. I think that, oh gosh, I might be wrong. The road might not have chapter breaks. Maybe. Maybe it has like book breaks, I, so big chunks. Yeah, I think it maybe has sections. Yeah. I think mostly, would, I think mostly, yeah. I think it would be really hard uh, to do a book of any length beyond this book and not have some sort of breaks. But I, I agree that like not having chapter breaks in this book really adds to kind of like the denseness of it, having it be all of one piece of fabric. I think it was really smart. How did you like it? Did you want some chapter breaks here and there? No, I think that it can't have chapter breaks because the chapter breaks break up the day and this is one day and it has to feel crowded like that. Has to feel exhausting. Yeah, it has to feel like one long big road and everything is go blending into each other and there's some natural breaks within the story like you could when the work day is over you could have a chapter break and now it's evening right once they're going out to get in line in the morning that could be a chapter break but that does i think that that would do an injustice to the story it would do damage it would wound the story because the whole point is that it's one day like every day and this is just it's all kind of one globbed in amount of time David, do you agree? You're the one who cares probably most about these kinds of things. I mean, I think the effect is, I mean, I think it, I think you're right. I think the effect is that it makes you, it makes it feel all of one long day. And I, what would I, I thought a lot about while reading what the effect would be if he changed that. Um, I think it's a, the high wire act to write this way. It's a risk. And there are times when I think it lags because of it. But um but overall I think it's worth the risk and I think it's worth those lagging moments. The lagging moments also might just be because you're experiencing the effects of it. And that's such a thing I was trying to be self-conscious about when reading. Was it was it was I actually feeling like there was something to be critical of in those moments when it lags or was it just that I was tired mm. of the experience and that's and I don't know I have to read it again being more even more self-conscious about it um, as you know this was my first time reading it so um, that um, I, I need to read it again with, with that thought in mind okay let's do one more question before we let you go um, Elizabeth wants to know what did you make of the medical orderly at the beginning of the book he is supposedly a writer and more interested in writing but he implements the camp's insane rule that only two people are allowed to be sick per day. It seemed like he was the embodiment of how the people enforcing the rules are losing their humanity too. Does writing protect the writer from the effects of the camp by letting him express the human suffering? Or does writing allow the writer to create distance between himself and his own loss of humanity? And is this character a reflection of the author's own experience? Any thoughts on this? It's a pretty interesting question that I don't, know the answer to. <laughs> I've not thought about this before. It's a really good question. Um, one thing that I noticed about this book that applies to that character is that uh, the that the book does not have like an us versus them mentality towards the uh, the wardens and um, like the prison. They, they're kind of all in it together. Yeah. And um, but not in a comradeship sense, just in the sense that they are all they're suffering through it. Um, and, uh, and each person seems to be treated, um, by Shukov as, um, as not as like a bad guy because he's like a staff person, but as 
evaluated to the extent that Shukov can apply his cunning to get what Shukov wants, right? And and so that's true too um, for the prisoners and for the guards. And this guy is no exception. Like Shukov talks to, about him um, or his, his his relationship with him is how can is this guy going to be able to give me what I want, which is a day off? And the answer is no. But then he's humanized by the fact that he's a writer. And I like your question about his writing because I think that the writing displaces him from his true humanity um, and becomes then uh, and doesn't take him deeper into it. And I think that's true for just about everybody around that they are all coming up with strategies to endure and to survive um not to like flourish in their humanity it's not like oh he's creating art and therefore art is getting him through this tough time right um it's not that it's something else um and uh and so from the very beginning we're given these characters with the only exception to it truly is alyoshka Him. It reminds anything? me of that scene from Schindler's List where Rafe Fiennes, who's kind of in charge of the uh, concentration camp, I think he's listening to Brahms or something like that. And, you know, outside in the prison camp, the most horrible things are happening. You know, if, I, I'm not saying that this character was like the Rafe Fiennes character in that story, but the refining effects of art we're immune to the refining efforts of art if our heart is closed to the refining efforts of art is mm -hmm. i guess the simple way to say it hmm. well okay this is the time where i just ask you what are your final thoughts on this book how do i let you go first and then we'll let tim go all right just so, so we, you know here alternating my, voices my final thought is to recommend uh, if you're if you if you are up for a an even deeper if this is whetted your appetite and you've thought where can I find a truly um, a story that will take me into the horror of the gulag mm. and um, uh, then more Sultanitsyn for sure and then a contemporary novel that does that that I cannot recommend highly enough is, but it's a long one, is the book Island of the World by Michael O'Brien. And read that if you want to know what it was really like in the Gulag. That's a book that story. we have, I have kind of circled for a potential long read on HQ at some point. Um, but If it's we pretty, read yeah. that, we can definitely read The Sparrow. It's, it's harder than The Sparrow to read. But it's it's a magnificent novel, and it's the one that gave me eyes to see. I guess like the depth of human suffering and like the the capacity we have for it, which and that that capacity that is formed by suffering has to be met by an even greater grace. Um, and 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 I think that was the book that opened me to that, like to vicariously suffer through this book made me, I think, a deeper human. So I would recommend that one. One of Bethany's favorite books. That's probably the same reason. If you want a little bit more about the history, the Gulag Archipelago is um, the mm -hmm. place to go. But if you want a little bit more about modern Russian history, especially the fall of the Soviet Union, I've got a book that I love so much. Lenin's Tomb by David Remnick. Mm. It won the Pulitzer the in 1994. Book. It's so good. And it's kind of like, all right, we just destroyed our culture. How did we do it? And what do we do now? That's not a, that's, that sounds like terribly unappealing. It's just, it's a wonderful book to kind of like see about like, what does the rubble of this culture look like what after? What was the cost Stalin? of it? Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah, it's a um, that book still sells too. Does it really? Yeah. Does it sell at your bookstore? Yeah. yeah, I keep it in stock. Yeah, I mean it's not like it sells every day, but yeah, you know it's highly regarded. 
My final thought is that since we're in keeping with if you want to learn more about dot, 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 I would say if you want to learn more about Heidi, you should read Anne of Green Gables. And if you want to learn more about Tim, you should read Anna Karenina. Um, if you want to learn more about David, punishment. read Lon- Lonesome Dev. Yeah, which but I hesitate. Not for the I'm morals not... of its central characters. I have lots of thoughts on that. Um, all right. Well, thank you to Ecstasis Magazine, which is ecstasismagazine.com. Not ecstasis.com, ecstasismagazine.com. Uh, thank you to them for sponsoring. Please check out what they're doing. It's it's really cool. Um, really high quality materials and high quality thought and writing in in their materials as well. So check them out online or in print. Um, as I said, up next, the Moving Toy Shop. Tim, you're off for the Moving Toy Correct. Shop, right? I think Sean's back for that. Um, so but we'll, we'll be doing three weeks on that. It's just The first episode is going to be the first half of the book. The second episode will be the second half of the book. And the third episode will be the Q&A. So it's pretty simple as far as that goes. Um, and then over on the bonus show, we are just finishing up that hideous strength. And after that, we are going to be diving into Kristen Lavern's daughter, uh, book one. So lots of great content. Uh, we've got the the bonus episodes on movies and short stories and our poetry and all that. So if you would like to, if you're interested in gaining access to all of that, make sure you go to closereads.substack.com and subscribe. All right. Anything else you want to add before we go, before I officially sign off? All right. They're shaking their heads. So that means I can, can officially sign off. They're ready to eat dinner. <laughs> for Tim McIntosh and for Heidi White, I'm David Kern. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, happy reading. Happy reading.